The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour with me, David Kermode, here on Food FM. This week, Stellenbosch, South Africa's biggest, most famous wine region. We'll talk about what makes it special and why its Cabernet Sauvignon is garnering attention. We'll hear from an accomplished winemaker with an inspiring story. And old world, new world, we know what it means for wine, but what about whiskey? We'll talk to expert Charlie Steele, plus your usual recommendations from the IWSC Hall of Fame. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Stellenbosch is South Africa's largest and undoubtedly its most famous wine region. An historic town just 25 miles from Cape Town, it's home to more than a third of the Cape's wineries and it's also the celebrated epicentre of the country's Cabernet Sauvignon production. Though we often talk about New World in the context of South Africa, uh, they've been making wine for more than 300 years, so it's a bit of a nonsense, really. Rudger van Wyk is winemaker at Stark Condé in Stellenbosch, a celebrated producer of Cabernet Sauvignon, and I'm delighted to say he joins us now. Uh, Rudger, welcome to the drinking hour. Good morning, David. Top of the morning to you. Top of the morning to you as well. Uh, thank you for your time. I know you're a, a very busy man. Um, before we get to talking about Stellenbosch, uh, I want to talk about you a little bit, and I know you don't like talking about yourself too much, but, uh, but we can. I think it's it's worth doing that. Tell us about your own wine journey and how you came to be a winemaker in Stellenbosch. Yeah, so my, my wine journey is a little bit unique. I am first generation winemaker in my family. I am the youngest of three brothers, and my mother and my father are two uh, recently retired um, teachers. And uh, I grew up in a small town called George, which is on the Cape South Coast. We call it the Garden Route, and it's probably the, one of the most beautiful spots in South Africa. Um, you know, the closest thing that we get there is probably more cattle and ostrich and vegetables uh, compared to vineyards. So there's not a lot of vineyards um, all around me. Um, yeah, born and bred boy from, from George. I went to study at the University of Stellenbosch, winemaking. Um, so my middle brother actually did that first and introduced me to wine. Um, you know, uh, alcohol has always been part of our family, um, get-togethers more or less. So as I grew up, um, you know, beers and spirits is probably the way to come together and have fun. And uh, wine was a very interesting subject for me. Um, it combined science with farming. My father really loved farming. Um, he always wanted us to become a farmer or own a farm um, in the future. And uh, I thought, you know, <laughs> I wasn't really into the cattle farming or the vegetable farming. So I thought, well, not why don't we combine science with farming and, and winemaking led me uh, to that choice. And also my mother is still uh, very religious, um, sometimes not very happy of my career path in winemaking. She thought that, you know, I would... Um, not consume alcohol and go the right route. Um, but we still have, up until today, a lot of um, very good arguments <laughs> when it comes to paying the bills and etc. Well, I'm sure she's uh, extremely proud of you as well. One of your great achievements 
was um, earning yourself uh, a kind of, um, I, I want to say a bursary, but I don't know if that's the correct word, but a kind of a program uh, operated by the Cape Wine Guild. And that saw you going to Burgundy, didn't it? Yes. Yeah, so, um, you know, in my studies at the University of Stellenbosch, the passion really grew. And uh, in my third year, we were approached by the Cape Winemakers Guild, a very good or massive initiative on helping people um, from disadvantaged areas or, you know, livelihoods. And uh, I managed to get a spot to go and harvest in Burgundy in 2015. And actually, a week prior to that, uh, a position opened at Stark Conde Wines um, as assistant winemaker. So it was like two flies in, in like, you know, <laughs> very, very lucky to have got the position at Stark Conde and actually go to Burgundy after that. And who were your mentors in terms of winemaking? So I must say, I think uh, Aubrey Bieslar from uh, Canoncorp Wine Estate, very historical wine estate in South Africa or in Stellenbosch, um, he played a massive role. They specialize in Carbonic Sauvignon too, Bordeaux blends, Pinotage. And then after that, I actually went to Durbanville, which is more cool, coastal, um, and they specialize in Sauvignon Blanc. So um, a lot less smaller, it's more garagiste style of winemaking. And uh, the thought behind that was, uh, you know, as a youngster, I wanted to gain experience as much as possible um, from different areas, different ways of thinking, different styles of winemaking. And yes, I think that played a massive role up until where I am today. And there's an interview with you uh, on Jantis's site uh, where you say uh, somewhere down the interview uh, that um, working at wine shows, uh, you were misjudged for a runner for ice or someone who works in the tasting room that was the perception that the general consumer had of me while i was pouring them a glass of wine you say it's uh, a really obviously very striking line in in that uh, interview uh, piece with you has that changed at all um yeah i think uh, after that article with jenses um, um things took a positive spin but you know i i i think Always we talk about it in the winery that the proof is in the pudding and uh, people should judge me by my winemaking. And I think that has recently happened. Uh, it has changed. The narrative has changed. Um, but, you know, I, I try to focus on, on the positives. I like working with people and meeting new people. And a lot of people come up to me these days and just say they've had a very delicious bottle of wine. Um, and that makes my heart very warm and happy. Good. Well, um, I will judge you by your wines because I was uh, lucky enough to taste uh, three of them uh, the night before last, and uh, they're, they're excellent. So let's talk about um, Stellenbosch. Uh, for those who have been there, they won't forget Stellenbosch in a hurry. It's beautiful. But uh, for those who haven't been there, uh, then just give us a little description. Talk about the uh, geography and uh, what makes winemaking there so special. Yeah, like, geez, where do I start? I think uh, Stellenbosch is in the heart of the winelands. Like I said, I've always had a dream to be making wine in Stellenbosch um, while I was studying in the University of Stellenbosch. It's a very special place. I think South Africa in general is a very special place. We have a lot of um, beautiful nature spots or areas that just makes us totally different to the global context. Um, Stellenbosch per se, um, yeah, it has all different type of elements. Um, you have unique soil types. We have oceanic influences. We have uh, a lot of valleys and mountain influences. 
and um, that all that whole complex mosaic uh, influences has a massive influence on our um, production of premium wines in our country. And it has uh, obviously an amazing climate for wines, but as I understand it, it has some of the least fertile soil anywhere in South Africa. Tell us, uh, for those who don't uh, know why that's a good thing, uh, tell us why bad soil in terms of fertility is good for Cabernet. Yeah, you know, um, if I can use the analogy, I, I, I recently had, a, two years ago, a newborn, my first newborn child. Um, and, you know, I've come to notice, even from my own livelihood, that if you just have that balance of just struggling a little bit, that you learn from your mistakes and your lessons and, and you actually prosper in your future in divorce. Um, and I think that's quite similar to, to our vineyards. Um, look, Stellenbosch um, in general, I think, has uh, predominantly a lot of decomposed granite, granitic soils um, from the table or uh, table mountain that we have in Cape Town. So I also wanted to say that uh, South Africa in a whole has some of the world's most ancient soils. So you have this pure expression um, from different varietals, especially Carbonis Sovio, that you have here that makes it very distinctive from the Napa or uh, Europe. And what about the Yonkers Hook Valley? What makes that uh, so special for your uh, signature grape variety, Cabernet Sauvignon? Yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm always very excited working with Yonkers Hook. We are a very unique area here. Um, we're based in a, in a, a valley of, in between mountains. Um, a lot of decomposed granite swells here. Look, our, our estate is, it starts with 150 meters above sea level and it goes right up to about 590 meters above sea level. We have several different aspects. I really think like this is the true definition of terroir. You've probably heard a lot of winemakers and wine scholars talk about terroir. Um, and those different elements that I just mentioned, it all comes together here in the valley and it gives me a great opportunity to express this valley and in, in Carbonet Sofia itself. One of your top wines, uh, one of those that, uh, in fact, the one I, I enjoyed the most, I think, uh, Oud Nectar, a uh, very high scoring wine. It's done so well in so many competitions around the world. Um, it comes from what you describe as an elevation vineyard. Um, just explain um, what that elevation is and, and why that uh, makes a difference. Yes, so Oda Nectar is a very, very special vineyard. Um, I always like taking people up there. It's about 590 meters above sea level. It's westerly facing. Um, and as many of us know that the higher you go up in elevation, um, the cooler it becomes. But also what makes that block so very special is it's the coolest block of Carbonet on our estate, but it receives about 20 or 30 minutes more sunlight hours on average per day. So you basically have this great combination of warm weather or cooler weather with a lot of sunlight radiation that actually gives it a longer time ripening period. And we want that because, um, you know, the old analogy, low and slow in, in, in the kitchen um, develops more flavor and aromatics. And that's precisely what happens here. It's a very unique wine, a very unique site. The soils there are also unique. The higher we go, we get a bit more uh, quartz and sandstone. So the, the vineyard is very stony. Um, and that actually brings out that tight, firm tannins that we have and a very nice, um, fresh acidity um, that actually, for me, makes that wine very Bordeaux-esque or, or old world in style.
it's a very uh, polished wine, and uh, it's also, uh, I mean, there's, it's, it's very tightly wound. There's a huge amount of um, a kind of fruit depth and complexity there, but it's also very accessible uh, for something that uh, is, is uh, relatively young. Uh, we're so used to, you know, historically, um, uh, Bordeaux, uh, varieties uh, that you know, producing wines that you you can't access very quickly. Um, so is that something uh, that you've set out to do to make things to make wines that are um, uh, accessible early? Look, I think um, it's very critical in 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 times that we are living in today. Uh, a lot of people are buying or purchasing wines that they immediately want to drink. Um, sometimes I even struggle, you know, to put away some of these wines because they're just so da- damn delicious. So, yes, I think I, the important part is to make wines that are um, relatively approachable in their youth, but also the focus should be on, you know, aging wines and, and the development of tertiary flavors. That's very critical for me. I think, you know, when it comes to a fine wine, you have to have that great combination of fruit power, but also that savory characteristics that just um, elevates the wine and, and makes it more complex. Mm. Well, you certainly do that. Um, you're using organic methods for your wines. Uh, why is that important to you? Yeah, you know, um, our estate is based, um, we are about 250 hectares um, in size, of which 40 hectares is planted to vineyard. So about 80% of our farm is actually indigenous Feinbos. Um, Feinbos is very well known in South Africa and it, it, like 90 or 95% of this plant species actually just grows in our beautiful country. Also, we are right next door to a world UNESCO site, uh, the Yunkersuk Valley, where it's a mountain trail. Um, it houses about over a thousand different uh, Feinbos species. Uh, we have a lot of rain, uh, waterfalls here. And uh, just in general, I think with global warming, the idea was on farming sustainably um, and farming, farming responsibly to preserve our beautiful mother nature that we can actually, you know, pass this on to, to our future. And uh, yeah, I think when, when I talked about that, I think the idea was um, to use no more herbicides, no more pesticides. And while I had a stint in, in Burgundy, we tasted a lot of organic or biodynamic wines, and I just think that the wines are so much purer, um, way more better flavor. Uh, aromatics are just out of this world, and um, it was just it was just a very nice um, transition um, farming biology biologically and moving over into organic farming. I'm very excited that we are actually moving over next year. Uh, 2022 would be our first um, certified organic harvest. Um, so yes, watch this space. And what about biodynamic? Because um, that always fascinates me. And I've talked to winemakers uh, on this program about uh, biodynamic uh, farming and uh, what it brings to wine. Um, do you use some biodynamic methods as well as organic? Yes, <laughs> I must say, I think uh, we're taking it step by step. Our transition from conventional farming to organic farming, uh, that was, that was a, a mind shift. But I must say, you know, um, biodynamic farming is a very interesting concept. I think working with the tides and the gravitational pull, there's definitely something in in that method. 
um, that excites me and, and, and interests me. But yes, I mean, we, we should see how far we go. And, and in the future, we might look at that principle. Mm, interesting. Watch this space uh, then in that, in that case. Um, South African wine um, has had a really tough time of it in recent years. Obviously, there have been uh, the weather conditions, the drought uh, that caused uh, immense uh, sort of pressure. And then uh, we've had the COVID restrictions, the ban on sales of alcohol, I think you've had, gosh, I've lost count of the number of individual bans there have been to try to uh, limit hospital uh, admissions. Um, how has this all kind of impacted um, your life and, and your journey as a, as a winemaker? Because that's all really happened for you in that time, hasn't it? Yeah, look, um, I tend to believe that I try to look life and the world in a positive way. Um, although we always get challenged by some of these negative points. Um, I must say, I, I have definitely drank more wine after the drought and the COVID um, experiences. Um, <laughs> that was a very nice thing. Um, but, you know, I think uh, us as South Africans uh, in general, we are, uh, as a human being, very robust and we um, acclimatize to our problems and we adjust and we make plans on, on how we move forward. Um, you know, it, all, we've always had challenges in our country. And I think when you have these challenges, you always get that resolve to rise to the top and make a plan and just work through it. I think we as a country, we always come together in times like these and uh, we prosper in, cha in these challenges. Just for anyone who has not um, been to South Africa or doesn't have a, uh, an intimate knowledge of the, um, the power and importance of the wine industry, um, just uh, tell us a bit about, um, in your area, in the Cape, uh, and in Stellenbosch specifically, um, how important uh, wine is to uh, the local economy, jobs, livelihoods, etc. Yes, um, I think, you know, our industry, I'm very proud to say that our industry contributes massively to our uh, local and even national GDP. In, in our winelands, um, I don't know the precise percentage, I'm not going to quote that. But we, we play a massive role in job creation and we realize that and, and we try to embrace that. Um, so getting that combination right of, you know, developing jobs and developing skills, for me, that's a very important thing because, yeah, my parents also, they came from humble beginnings, if I can put it in, in, those, in that phrase. Um, and it's always good to give back and develop our country. Um, like I said, I think our country has gone through a lot of struggles. And um, I think with our industry, if we can get together and help other people, we can only, you know, see the light at the end of the tunnel. And in the time that you've worked with South African wine, uh, making it, of course, um, then how have you seen uh, perceptions of it evolve and change? Because I'm always amazed, I'm always really uh, blown away by the ratio of quality to value uh, with South African wine uh, that we get in, in this market and we, we import a, a lot of it, major export market for South African wine, of course. Um, it's, uh, that's not to say it's just about value, it's about, but it's about quality to price. And I think that, that gives amazing value. Would you, would you kind of subscribe to that view? Yes, I, I, I definitely think so. I think, you know, like we were talking about our, our uh, challenges that we had, uh, you know, different kinds of sanctions, 
different kinds of trade. When our country opened up in 1994, um, winemakers got the opportunity to travel the world. And I think that played a massive role in where we are today. Um, we have gotten the opportunity to, to travel, you know, to Europe, um, to the New World countries and learn from them and bring all that knowledge back to South Africa. I also think that in the time that we are now, um, South Africa is in a very exciting position when it comes to winemaking. Uh, people are doing different things, have different ideas, and it's so exciting to see all these winemakers producing top quality wines, and it just so happens to be of great value. I also think that, you know, we punch well above our weight class uh, when it comes to producing premium wines, and long may it be so. So watch the space again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, talking of watching this space, um, how is the 2021 vintage uh, looking? Yeah, so, um, you know, the 2021 vintage, the white wines were beautiful. Um, I actually recently, uh, two weeks back, I've bottled and put my wines into bottle. Um, look, we also had a little bit of a challenge through Mother Nature. Um, we had a few forest fires um, on our property that we had a little bit of damage on our red wines, a little bit of smoke taint. Um, but the rest of the vintage looks very beautiful. And I'm very excited, like uh, looking at them in the next eight to 10 months. But also looking forward to 2022, you know, it's a very beautiful vintage and the vineyards look very vibrant and ready to go. Yeah, because of course, uh, you're in the Southern Hemisphere. So uh, you're gearing up. I mean, harvest is obviously a few months away still, but you, uh, but you, it must be shaping up pretty well already, I, I'm guessing. Yes, so it's actually, we've had a very nice um, growing season so far. The weather actually has been very cool. Um, uh, yesterday actually was the first day that we had a day that was higher than 25 degrees Celsius. Um, so, so far, so good. Um, the crop looks healthy. Our Cape Doctor, called the uh, Southeaster, um, has been uh, non-existent. It's probably just been... been a few days that it was um, blowing around. Um, yes, um, from my perspective, I'm very excited to see how this vintage would actually develop because, yeah, we've we've gotten through a few tough drought um, years. Uh, not that that has lifted. I still think that there's still a lot to be done. But yes, a lot of water that we have to our farms or our irrigation dams. Um, and we've had a lot of rain um, that was very good for our soils. Good. Well, let's hope the uh, benign, reasonably benign conditions uh, continue for the 2022 vintage. And I um, look forward very much to hearing how that goes. Um, a final thought uh, from you, uh, harking back, I suppose, to what we were talking about at the start. Um, if you encountered someone who was you 10 years ago, let's say, what would you say to them? What would be your uh, encouragement to them if they wanted to pursue a career in winemaking and to, to achieve what you've achieved? Yeah, look, it's it's still for me, <laughs> I sometimes sit back and just think about it. I've been in the industry for only seven years, so I'm still a, relatively a youngster. Um, so it, it has been a very interesting seven years. Um, I think if I had to, had to encounter another person um, I would probably say that you have to be very passionate about this industry. You have to enjoy what you're doing. And I do think that times are changing. People, they should just focus uh, on, on the job that's required. And um, 
make delicious wines. And I think the rest will follow. I, I think that old cliche about, you know, you, even if, if you work hard, people will start to recognize you. And yeah, just go on and prosper. Great advice. Well, you're certainly making the delicious wines. I can uh, vouch for that. So, uh, Ruger, thank you very much indeed for your time uh, on The Drinking Hour. Oh, thank you, David. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And uh, yes, hopefully we can meet in person um, in the future. I look forward to that. That will be very nice. And if you want to taste uh, Rudger's wines, as I did, uh, then a simple Google search should help you. Uh, that's what I did earlier on. Um, they're imported by Museum Wines uh, in the UK, and you can find them at frontierfinewines.co.uk, amongst other places. So do try to uh, get your hands on at least a bottle. In a moment, we'll have the first of our recommendations from the IWSC Hall of Fame. But first, here's news of another Food FM programme you might love. Thank you, David. I'm Jenny Linford from Food FM, and I'm exploring the world of cheese, from brie to parmesan and everything in between. So after enjoying the drinking hour, why not listen to my series, A Slice of Cheese? You can find it on your podcast platform and foodfmradio.com. Now back to David and the drinking hour. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. It's time now for our first selection of medal winners from the IWSC Hall of Fame 2021. And where better to start than South Africa? Let's begin with the winner of the coveted Outstanding Wine Producer of the Year, and also Red Wine Producer of the Year, Villafonte, a coming together of the USA and South Africa, co-founded by Mike Ratcliffe, a trustee of the Cape Wine Auction, head winemaker Zelma Long, and Dr. Phil Fries, a veteran of Opus One in Napa. Series C 2014 is the wine, a blend, a majority Cabernet Sauvignon with Merlot, Cabernet Franc and Malbec, uh, was a gold medal winner with 96 points, uh, I was on the uh, judging panel for this wine, along with John Hoskins, M.W., uh, Robbie Tootail of Lane Wheeler and Joanna Locke, M.W., of the Wine Society. And we said, a wine of true elegance and class with its beguiling nose of cedar spice, graphite and foraged blackberry and its pure, juicy palate. Concentrated layers of ripe black fruit are beautifully balanced by a cool mineral undercurrent and well-polished tannins. Next, a Salso. I adore Salso from South Africa. And this is a bright, light, juicy, red-fruited example. Uh, a bronze medal winner, an old Bushfinds Salso 2019 from Darling Cellars, which is a cooperative winery on the West Coast, uh, dating back to 1948. Of this, the judges said, lovely purity of soft, ripe blue and plum fruit, good varietal character. And this is available at uh, Ministry of Drinks for £14, so it's pretty good value too. Finally, uh, Boschendal Method Cap Classique Brut Non-Vintage. Uh, MCC, if you don't know it, Method Cap Classique is the uh, South African traditional method sparkling wine. Uh, they're amazing uh, for quality and, and, and price, I think. And this was a silver medal winner with 92 points. Uh, the judges saying... Fresh lemon, ripe yellow apples, white peaches on a light, short crust pastry. Light and easy drinking sparkling wine. As I say, I'm a huge fan of MCC. Uh, this is uh, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, so it's uh, two of the uh, Champagne grapes. 
uh, delivering uh, an amazing uh, quality level, I think. Uh, in this case, uh, under £15 as well. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. We've probably all used the term old world or new world when it comes to wine, uh, though, as we've discussed previously here on The Drinking Hour, the terms are somewhat erroneous, somewhat meaningless, really. But how about whisky? Old world whisky uh, conjures up Scotch or Irish whisky with an E added, or maybe uh, a bourbon from the USA. But what about the new world? Well, there are whiskies being made all over the world, be it uh, Bolivia, New Zealand, Taiwan or Wales, to name just a few. And it's little wonder with global whisky sales now worth more than $60 billion and growth in the category forecast at 6% over the next decade. Charlie Steele is a whisky expert, the portfolio director at Distill Ventures, and uh, he joins us now. Uh, Charlie, uh, welcome to The Drinking Hour. Uh, David, thank you very much for having me on. You're very welcome. We'll come on to what you do for the day job uh, later on. Uh, but first, I wanted to talk about the, the kind of basics, really. When we talk about New World whisky, and I've noticed that it's uh, a term that's cropping up uh, more and more, mm. um, what are we defining? Yeah, well, you definitely do see it more, don't you? And I think that's really exciting. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is exciting now, but we're pretty sure it's going to be even more exciting in the future. So how do we define it, David? Probably there's two kind of contradictory elements to it. The first is it's whiskies that are being made somewhere not typically associated with whiskey production. You know, you mentioned Wales and Taiwan. They're, they're great examples. But then it's also whiskies from classic whiskey producing countries, you know, like you mentioned, Scotland, Ireland, the US, but being made in a way that is not usually associated with that country, using different techniques, um, different styles and having different approaches um, to create something really different from that country. So a good example might be, I don't know, Arbiki up here in Scotland making its Highland rye whiskey or uh, Westwood single malt in the US, um, doing very different things from what you would typically associate with those countries. Ah, that's interesting. So the old world, for which mm. I think of Scotland, Ireland and the USA, yes. as I mentioned, the old world can also be new world. Yeah, that's uh, honestly, that's why I love it as a, as a kind of new category. It's very inclusive in that sense. And it's absolutely true that uh, whiskies and the new world whiskey category can come from the old world. Um, but the key, the, I think the key thing is that it's not about the country so much as about the approach. It's the approach that's really critical. It's uh, being innovative. It's, you know, looking at things differently. It's talking to the consumer in a different way and making, you know, liquids that are really delicious and have their own unique flavor. That's what really makes new world whiskies stand out from the old world. Out of interest, where does Japan sit in this? Because it's making some you know, award-winning, yeah. highly acclaimed whiskies, and yet it's not uh, traditionally, going back a long yeah. way, thought of as a whisky country, is it? Well, it's a funny one. I mean, I, I, Japan's a classic example of, you know, it, it's got both. I mean, it is, it is in some sense old world. It has a pretty long history and association with, with whisky whiskey production and it's certainly got you know very well known brands i think most whiskey consumers most spirits drinkers know that you get whiskey from japan whereas you know i would say most probably certainly 10 years ago didn't know that you got whiskey from taiwan so i would i would put japan 
you know, in part in that old world of whiskey and that it's got very established brands and it's had a, a long history of whiskey production. But, but right now in Japan, the, the most exciting thing happening is this emergence of a, a really exciting new breed of craft distilleries in Japan, like Chichibu or Kanosuke. Uh, and they're producing delicious spirits and whiskeys in super innovative ways, uh, inspired by local traditions and cultures. And for me, those are the whiskeys that sit in the new world whiskey category. So you've kind of hinted at the answer to this already, uh, but what yeah. makes the concept of a, a new world whiskey so exciting to you? Ah, well, you know, first and foremost, it's about the product itself. I mean, if you go into your, you know, your, your good local bar or your good local kind of independent retailer, there is just a plethora now of wonderful whiskies to choose from. And, and that's been driven by the emergence of this category. But, you know, why is it, why is it so exciting? It, it's so exciting for me, you know, looking at the kind of category level, because it's a, it's a combo of two critical things. Firstly, you've got um, the consumer side, you know, that's obviously the key driver of it. But we've, we've now got a way younger, a much more curious uh, consumer coming into the whiskey category who's willing to take their time to dig deep and research around what they want to try next. And they're willing to spend on quality as well. So you've got that consumer uh, driver side of what's going on. And then on the whiskey maker side, what you have is passionate founders and whiskey makers all over the world producing really unbelievable liquids in really innovative ways and sharing great stories about how they're doing it. And, and that's the perfect storm because between those two things, you've got uh, the, a real, you know, the headwinds to really drive a new category. Uh, and what makes it really exciting is we see these new world whiskies as being key to transforming the whole whiskey category in the future and really making it much more exciting, much more versatile, much more diverse a category than it is now and that and that's obviously wonderful if you're in the whiskey industry because you know whiskey needs to keep reinventing itself to to keep up with the pace of the consumer change that we see going on out there it's interesting you say that because if you'd asked me um you know perhaps a decade ago uh, as someone who is uh, into drinks but but by no means uh, in my case a, a whiskey expert just to be clear um, yeah. I would have said that the image for me of, of whiskey was a bit male and stale. Uh, but yeah. actually, if you look at the figures, it's, it's, it's really tapping into a younger generation, isn't it? Absolutely. Younger and more diverse. Let's, I mean, let's be honest. I mean, certainly when I was growing up here in Scotland in the 80s and 90s, you, you probably tended to drink what your dad or your granddad drank. The typical time to drink it would have been after dinner with the fire on and probably with a another, you know, older male, you know, that was the old sort of kind of association of what drinking whiskey was all about. But that's just been blown out of the water now. I mean, when you when you get all, all over the world going out and about, you know, visiting bars, visiting retailers, you just see uh, miles younger consumer, miles more diverse consumer, you know, both gender, race, background. I mean, whiskey is really opening up as a category. And that's, you know, it's wonderful, wonderful news for it. And, it. and it's driving real innovation in the category because, you know, inherently when you have a consumer looking to try things and experience things in different ways, you know, the producers follow suit. And we're seeing that with all the innovation you see on shelf. And we'll talk about the techniques in just a moment, because I know that's probably mm. the more important thing uh, rather than geography. But I just want to do mm. a bit of that uh, geography first. What are, uh, what are the, some of the more unusual places uh, that you're seeing whiskey being produced? Oh, I love this 
question, David, because honestly, there is no answer. I mean, I, I, it's one of the real pleasures of my job that I get to speak to founders from, you know, loads of different backgrounds, but really from all over the world pursuing this sort of dream and exploring it. Uh, and there just isn't, uh, there isn't a rule. I mean, they really, really can and do come from, from anywhere. Um, at the moment, I think we've got, what, over 30 countries now producing whiskey. I'll, I'll bet you in, in 10 years, that'll be, you know, 50, 60 countries. But, you know, at the same time, there have been regions really kind of driving the innovation that we're seeing in New World Whiskey. I mean, they're, they're typically the Nordic countries, Australia, New Zealand, you know, even here, David, in the UK, too. I mean, you can literally travel the length and breadth of the country and find exciting distilleries popping up. I, you know, I think of there's, there's downpour up in the north of Scotland in North US making a wonderful gin and soon no doubt to make a wonderful whiskey. You can go through to Derbyshire with White Peak to Pendrin in Wales, like you, you mentioned, to the Oxford Artisan Distillery in Oxfordshire. I mean, they are, they are popping up all over the place in the UK. Uh, so there are regions, David, that have been driving it. But again, there's just not a rule. It's like I sort of said at the beginning, the more critical thing is the approach versus the place. Yeah, only at the weekend, actually, I was tasting a, a sample of a, of a, a, well, a couple of whiskies from the Cotswold Distillery, actually, which yeah. is more famous Wonderful for its, example. its gins, but they make great whiskey as well, it turns out, which is... Uh, oh, yeah, I, I think so. And I think, you know, I think English whiskey for me is like one of the super exciting elements of New World whiskey. I mean, it's really putting us Scots you know, on our, on our, our tiptoes. Yeah, I bet. And so what about the techniques then that you're seeing used? You talked earlier on about innovation and it sounds like there's plenty of that. Yes, I, I think, you know, I think the overall important thing in terms of technique, you know, in terms of approach to technique is probably it's about respect for traditions, you know, learning from, you know, the great whiskey making regions and makers of the world, but not being bound by the rules. So, you know, just to give an, ex an example of that, I mean, most many of the New World whiskies are, in fact, double pot distilled as single malts are up in Scotland. But, you know, if I if I look at an example of how a New World whiskey takes this approach, if you go to Stowning on the west coast of Denmark, rather than the sort of two, four or six sets of stills that you would typically find in a Scottish distillery, they've got 24 direct fired small pot stills, which, you know, if you came and suggested that to a, a Scottish uh, distillery manager, he'd, he'd absolutely balk at you because of the, the complexity and cost of doing it. But Stowning have gone for this because of the flavour it gives them. So, you know, it is, it is but they've, they've looked at what Scot Scotland were doing and how they've done it in the past, and then they've innovated with it. So the, that respect for traditions, but being unbound by the rules is a kind of the approach, the umbrella approach, I would say. And then there's loads, David, honestly, we could we could talk for hours on different techniques, but there's everything from, you know, really championing local ingredients of, of what they're putting into the raw materials to make whiskey. And, you know, Waterford would be a great example in Ireland with their sort of single farm releases that they're doing at the moment. Uh, and, and indeed, kind of innovation in grain being used is definitely a big driver in terms of the different techniques in New World whisky. So rather than just using barley like you would in making single malt scotch, we're seeing so many different types of grain that are bringing so many different types of flavor to whisky, whether it's rye or, or corn or, or many other different types. And, and indeed, it's not just using one type of grain. What a lot of the innovators in New World whisky are doing is mixed mash bills where they're combining different types of grain. Again, often using old recipes that they've uncovered from the past and bringing to them, for, them to the fore in, with new sort of uh, production techniques. 
So there's there's innovation in grain, and then there's also innovation, a lot of innovation around fermentation techniques, which gets quite geeky, but using different types of yeast and different lengths, you know, really drawing a lot of inspiration from the, the craft beer revolution there. And then the last I'd probably sort of highlight is innovation in in woods, both in the kind of species of wood being used. So, you know, whiskey is typically matured in oak, but now you're seeing lots of different experimentation, whether it's Mizunara in Japan or Acacia. I, try, I tried a cedar finished uh, whiskey the other day. And then there's innovation in cast type. So again, most whiskey drinkers probably, they know about ex-bourbon casks or ex-sherry casks being used. But, you know, if I take you down to Melbourne and Australia, you've got a, a Starwood whiskey using absolutely delicious ex-Australian red wine cast to really drive a unique and very smooth flavoured whiskey that they have. So lots of different techniques being used, uh, David, and I'm sure we'll see continual evolution and revolution in the techniques being used in the coming years and decades. Yeah, I was in uh, at the Sherry Triangle um, a few weeks yes. ago, and, uh, and a lot of the Sherry barrels are now ending up uh, with a new life as uh, casks for maturation of whiskey. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's that is an old that is an old trend. You know, sherry cask finished whiskey is is kind of classic, uh, a classic part and element of the overall whiskey category. You know, you think of Macallans or the likes, where those those deep flavoursome whiskies. That's that's definitely not new. But what I think the the more interesting thing is seeing that branching out from sherry or using those sherry casks in a different way to create a different style and different flavour of whiskey. Uh, you know, and all of it is just adding to the kind of choice for the consumer on the shelf, which I guess is the, the most wonderful thing of all. And there are plenty of those consumers because we are seeing uh, amazing levels of growth. I mentioned in the introduction that we've got this forecast that the category will grow at 6% mm. across the next decade. But that is already off the back of uh, stellar growth, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, whiskey. You know, whiskey has, I suppose, had its ups and downs. But really, if you look at it as an overall drinks category over the last, you know, century, it's really had the most stable growth of any drinks category. And, it, you know, it has been on a long journey of success. It's, you know, it's had some tougher moments, in particular, the sort of 70s, early 80s. But the, the real big boom has been since the kind of late 80s, 90s, as single malt real, really emerged and as the big international brands really emerged. So, I mean, I think 2018, we're talking about a, a category that the total whiskey category, which is 440 million nine litre cases. And that's only forecast, like you said at the beginning, to keep on growing. And, and I think like the number I touched on that I find more interesting. So when I think obviously, you know, with my bias of our new world whiskies, is not so much that overall volume size, but it's the fact that you've got now these 30 countries making uh, whiskies. And, and, and I think, you know, of all the numbers, that's what I find most interesting. It's a little like, I guess, when, when we were all younger, when you used to go into a pub, there was, you'd only find one or two beers on tap. Now you go in and there's, you know, almost like 10, 20, 30 beers on tap. The same thing's happening in, in whiskey too. In the old days, you would have gone in, there would have been maybe four or five, if you're lucky, whiskies on the back bar. Now, you know, pretty much any good pub or bar, there'll be 10, 20, even 30 whiskies on the back bar. So, you know, it's a super exciting time for whiskey, no doubt about it. The old world whiskey uh, mm. empire is full of uh, some you know, really successful heritage mm. brands. Um, in order to sort of enter that uh, empire, to be a, a new world whiskey, which, as you say, is, is, is possible even if you're in the old world making it. Um, yeah. Do you have to do things in a different way or be in a different place or, or have some kind of USP? 
I, you know what? I, I'm kind of tempted to say, yes, you do. But the, the truth is, you know, especially when we just hark back to the size of the, the pie that we were just talking about there, the truth is I don't think you do. I mean, the whiskey world is full of a massive variety of consumers who look for different whiskies at, you know, during different occasions. Uh, and this means there is a lot of room for many different styles and approaches. And there's no doubt many consumers are still looking for that, that classic style, the classic brands of whiskey from the classic sort of places that you expect it to come through. But I think, you know, you know contradictory to that or, you know, in, along with that, it's also true that whiskey is immensely competitive. Uh, you know, you look at the, that whiskey back bar now and that, that, you know, that just will show or you go online and look at a whiskey retailer. There are a hell of a lot of whiskies and there's more ones emerging every day. And many, many, many of them are, are really great quality. So, you know, our opinion is that, you know, if you're going to be successful and, and the founders and entrepreneurs who are likely to, to be successful are the ones who are going to have a really distinctive vision, a, a unique and delicious product and with wonderful stories to tell and share that allow them to sort of cut through and stand out on the shelf and to the consumer. Well, that's where you can help, of course. So uh, just explain to us uh, what Distill Ventures is for those who don't know it and, and what it is that you do. Sure, Dave. So in a nutshell, um, Distill Ventures, you know, we, we tend to describe ourselves as the world's first drink accelerator. And, and what's our mission? It's to get out there to find incredible founders with, you know, really awesome ideas to invest in them and then to help them build, scale and sell what we believe will be, you know, the drinks brands of the future. Uh, and my role, and I'm, I'm obviously pretty biased and, and a whiskey lover too, so I, I think I've got the best job in the world pretty much, but my role is a, a combo of two things. You know, I've, I've got to do that, that in the New World Whiskey category. I've got to get out there, try and find the most exciting founders doing what we think is the most exciting stuff in whiskey. Um, and then once we've, once we've partnered with them and invested in them, it's the bread and butter of my day today is to, to help them along with the wider Distill Ventures team and our partners to grow and to be successful. You know, we, we just touched on how competitive a category is. I mean, it, it unfortunately is not enough just to have an amazing idea, you know, to, to cut through. It takes serious hard work, serious grit and determination and focus. And, you know, you need you need good partners and good support along the way to really realize the, the dream. And you're not talking here, uh, looking at your website and doing my, my yeah. homework. Um, you know, <laughs> you're partnering with some big names, some big money, names like Diageo here, aren't you? No, they are our sole investor. And, uh, you know, that is the, the aim of our game is to, to find the white space in Diageo's portfolio in the future that can capitalize on those drinks trends. So, uh, yep, it's the aim of our game is for uh, ultimately for the brands that we're investing in to be successful and to be acquired by Diageo and to allow the, the strength and scale of Diageo to really take the founder's dream to the next level uh, globally. And it sounds a bit like to put it in very simple terms a bit like matchmaking really yeah yeah i mean it's not quite silla black blind date-esque but i would say that's it it's all about you know it's matchmaking both yes trying to find the like i said the the future brands for the diageo portfolio but the the bigger picture for me is it's all about looking at those trends that we think are going to drive the drinks category in the future and and the matchmaking for me is finding the founder with the vision and ambition to fill that white space. And then, like I said, to support them, you know, achieve the vision, ambition that they that they have. And let's say um, I have a, a great idea for a, 
um, a drinks brand. It, it's whiskey, so it will be in your um, portfolio. Um, yes. How do I go about... Um, obviously, I appreciate that I have to have a product and it has to taste good, but uh, let's assume I do. How do yes. I go about getting that brand off the ground and into consumers' glasses? Again, it would be nice to kind of give you a list of things to do, but that, that just doesn't in reality exist because there, there aren't rules and, you know, we see people achieving success in different ways. But, you know, our opinion is there are some really critical factors that you've got to have in place to be successful and certainly to give you the cutting edge. Uh, and those would be have a really compelling and distinctive vision for for what the product and the brand will be to the consumer. I think it's really important to start with the consumer and sort of work backwards from that. And then, you know, you just have to accept that it is tough and it is competitive. So you, you're going to need real determination and grit to ruthlessly go after this. And I would say the big caveat to having that ruthless focus, David, is that you'd also need to have the ability to learn quickly and adapt as you know, the truth is nothing ever goes to plan and and those that are most successful successful are often the ones who are most nimble and able to you know change tack and drive forwards so if you do all those things david let, we'll, let's have a chat okay yeah right well uh, good well it's, it's, a bit, it's quite a list as you say but um but i'll i'll, I'll get on the case um go back to, to new world whiskey then um, mm. what do you think the world of new world whiskey is going to look like uh, in you know another decade's time if you had your your uh, we've already mentioned Scylla Black if you had uh, if you Mystic Meg uh, for example um, what do you <laughs> think uh, it's how is it going to evolve over the next decade well I think we're, we're on the cusp of something really exciting like I, I said at the beginning and I and I think what we'll find is New World Whiskey becoming more of a visible and prominent part of the overall whiskey category and by that I mean you know if you were in a bar there'll probably be in the in the list of whiskies along with you know the scotch and the irish and the american there'll probably be a new world whiskey page you know in that in that list there'll probably be a special area of the back bar dedicated to new world whiskies uh, and i and i think the important thing is what what will it bring and what will it be like for the consumer is it will be a much more innovative flavorsome um, welcoming um, whiskey world than perhaps it is today i think you know the truth of whiskey you know certainly historically is there have been sort of uh, barriers to entry and, and often that's been based on knowledge. E.g. if you, you know, if you don't understand how it's made, you won't really be able to appreciate uh, whiskey. And, and I think what New World Whiskey is really going to change and revolutionize uh, is that openness of whiskey and making people feel much more uh, happy to come and try a new whiskey without feeling intimidated by it. So I think, you know, it's going to look like a much more diverse, flavorsome, welcoming an exciting category than it does now. And I think you'll see that very much so in the next 10 years and beyond. Sounds really exciting. Uh, Charlie, it's a, a great pleasure to chat to you. Uh, really fascinating too. Um, thank you very much uh, for talking to us here on The Drinking Hour. David, thanks again for having me on. I've really enjoyed it. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. So there's just time for our final selection from the IWSC Hall of Fame. And uh, let's look at uh, the spirit side. Uh, let's kick off with a spirit from South Africa, as we've been talking so-called New World Spirits. This is KWV Pot Still Brandy 20XXO, a silver medal winner. 
South African brandy is rightly held in high regard the world over with their aged pot still expression constantly winning awards. Uh, the judges said sandalwood, green plum and white peach interwoven with notes of vanilla, leather and cigar. Complex and wonderfully balanced with a silky smooth finish. And that's available at the Whiskey Exchange. Next to a grappa from Prosecco. Vecchia Grappa di Prosecco from Andrea da Ponte won a silver medal with 90 points. The spirit at the heart of Prosecco, Grappa is made with Glera grapes. That's the same grape variety that's used for Prosecco. Uh, the judges said fragrant floral nose laced with thyme, oregano, olive oil and citrus on the pungent palate. Grapefruit, yuzu, green olives too. Fascinatingly unique a lusciously light maverick style, they said. And finally, how about this? 1920 Grand Champagne Cognac from Hermitage Cognacs. Uh, you may remember we spoke to its founder, David Baker, back in series one. Uh, it's a 2021 gold outstanding medal winner with 98 points. Uh, amazing score, but then he, he's quite used to getting these very high scores for his Hermitage Cognacs. Um, aged in oak for more than 70 years before being bottled, it will set you back over £1,200. Mind you, it is 100 years old, more than that. Uh, from vineyards in the Grand Champagne region, which has nothing to do with sparkling wine and refers, in fact, to the amount of chalk that's in the soil, which is very similar to uh, the terroir in Champagne, hence the name. Uh, the judges said, outstanding in complexity and structure with an enigmatic palette composed of an abundance of intricate layers of texture. Subtle yet established, notes of fresh fruit are enhanced in depth and complexity by rancio notes, expressive cardamom, cinnamon and hints of turmeric, an elegant spirit, they said. And if you want to know more about rancio, uh, then listen to uh, David uh, defining it uh, in that interview for the Drinking Hour uh, back in uh, series one. Time, though, for my own elegant spirit to say uh, that's it for this week. Thank you to my guests, uh, Rutger and Charlie. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Food FM Radio, or you can follow me, I'm Mr Venusaurus, on Instagram and Twitter. Until next time, though, it's goodbye. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.